Now take your Bible and open to John chapter 20. <clears throat> John 20. Just verse 30 and 31. Many of the signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace, your mercy, your kindness, and we thank you for Christ. And we thank you this morning for an opportunity to um, study uh, your word. And once more, we pray, Lord, that you'd open our hearts and our, our eyes, our minds to receive uh, your word and to think carefully on the topic and uh, impress your word upon our hearts, I pray. And uh, I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we come here to our study in the book of John, uh, these last two verses uh, of uh, the chapter, verse 31 is the thesis statement, uh, if you will, of the entire uh, gospel. And John has been presenting eyewitness historical evidence concerning the person of Jesus uh, of Nazareth. Uh, so that we would have an understanding and by believing that information, by believing the truth, the evidence, that might lead to eternal life. These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now, I told you a couple weeks ago when I was last with you, when you come to verse 30 and 31 here in chapter 20, for all intents and purposes, that's the finality of the gospel of John. Because the, the, the goal of the gospel of John has been reached. And, it, and the record of John's account and the ministry of, uh, of the person of Jesus has been culminated really with the acclamation and the affirmation concerning the reality that Jesus is the Christ, who he is. In John uh, uh, verse 28 there in chapter 20, uh, where Thomas says, my Lord and my God. That's the goal. So the people would understand who Jesus is. And again, verse 30 says, many of the signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. It's just an affirmation by John that acknowledges the fact there's other gospel accounts He's the, uh, that, that have recorded the, the work in the ministry, the signs of the person of Jesus Christ, the miraculous work of the Savior. Uh, again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, he is the last, John is the last gospel writer, and, and so he's well aware of these other texts. <clears throat> Verse 31, uh, but these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. As I told you, John lists seven different, seven specific miracles, seven manifestations of the deity of the person of Christ to prove that Jesus is much more than just a man. He's actually God incarnate, the God-man. And, and we went through those uh, seven signs the last time I was with you. The last one, you might remember, I told you that is in the book of John, is John chapter 11. <clears throat> That's when Jesus raises Lazarus of Bethany uh, from the tomb, right? He's been dead for four days. Everybody knows that. And yet still, men refuse to believe. They refuse to yield their life to the person of Jesus Christ. They refuse to repent and believe on, uh, on Jesus Christ for, for eternal life. And, and I said, e even the sight of the reality of somebody being raised from the dead, again, still some men won't believe because signs don't save us. Signs can't convert the fallen heart. Salvation doesn't come by way of signs or by way of the miraculous. Salvation comes by way of repentance and faith in the person of Jesus Christ alone. Because even when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, men still refused to believe. Which just shows the depth of the depravity of the human heart, the hardness of the human heart, the fact that men are dead in trespasses and sins. And unless God in his kindness regenerates the sinner, man has no hope. Because all men are saved by grace alone. Unless God in this kindness regenerates the sinner, the man, man has no hope because men are saved by grace alone. Now, as we're working our way through the, uh, the end of, of uh, chapter uh, 20, there's a couple issues that, that need to be addressed here. And if you think that I'm trying to hang on to this book, <laughs> you're right, I am. I love this book. Um, I, I hate to see it go, but we're coming to the end. And there's a couple issues we need to really think through uh, when we come to the end. And the first one here in verse 31 uh, is, all, and although we've done this before uh, in, in the study in various fashions, I, I just really feel that I need to one last time, uh, as again we're leaving the book, address the issue of true saving faith. 
the, the issue of true, the nature of true saving faith. These things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. So what exactly is the nature of true saving faith? It's a vital issue that I think is terribly uh, misunderstood, uh, especially in our day. Uh, I think there are far too many people who live under the delusion, uh, the, the illusion that they're saved, when in reality they're not, uh, because there is really a, there's a counterfeit faith. There is an unbelieving belief. Now, we live in the world of easy believism. We live in the world of easy believism, but Jesus didn't. Uh, turn, turn over to Luke chapter 14. Back to Luke 14. And, and look there at verse 25. And, and let's see how the Lord called people to follow him. Luke 14, verse 25. Now great, now great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Now I stop there and I say to myself, well, I'm quite sure that most modern quote-unquote church growth experts would say you can't do that. You can't do that. If you want to grow your church, you can't put forward that kind of an invitation. You, you can't tell people if they want to follow Jesus, you tell them that they have to hate their father and their mother. That's not going to be an effective strategy to grow your church, so say the so-called experts. But that's exactly what Jesus did. And Jesus goes on, verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In, in other words, Jesus says, look, if you're going to follow me, then you need to be willing to die. That's what it means to pick up your cross. You need to be willing to die. Verse 28, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one who's coming against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Verse 33, so therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. It's a pretty demanding invitation. Hate your family, be willing to give up your life, be willing to give up everything, all of your possessions. Count the cost. Because true, genuine salvation requires true faith, a true belief. Because there is a true faith and there's a counterfeit faith. There's a true faith and there's a false faith. And true faith looks like something and true faith costs. So what is the nature of true saving faith? Because again, John says, these things have been written that you might believe. Now, this actually comes up, this topic actually comes up a number of times uh, in the Gospel of John. It comes up the first time back in John chapter 2, uh, right after Jesus turned the water into wine there at the wedding at Canaan, and then he went and cleansed the temple for the first time there in, in Jerusalem, which again demonstrates the supernatural power of the person of Jesus Christ, because Jesus single-handedly uh, clears out thousands of perhaps individuals from, from the temple. He also at the same time demonstrates his love and his passion for his father, for, for God's righteousness, a passion for pure worship. Uh, he, he goes, he throws all these evil uh, money, evil men and the money changers out because they have perverted the temple, they've corrupted worship. And, and again, the, the religious, the so-called religious leaders whom Jesus identifies as an evil and adulterous generation who really have no true interest in the things of God, no true love for God, no ability to understand God or see him because he is literally standing in their presence face to face. They request from him a sign, which in and of itself is really a demonstration of their unbelief, and it's a, a really a rejection of the truth. So if you haven't turned there, make sure you turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 18. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show us, seeing that you do these things? Again, throwing everybody out. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rise it up again. 
So again, the religious leaders have no idea what he's talking about and really no interest in what he's talking about. They had not been listening to the voice of God through the Old Testament. And most certainly they can't listen to the voice of God again when he's literally in their presence and they're literally standing toe to toe with him. They don't recognize him. They don't recognize him, therefore they don't understand him. Verse 20. The Jews therefore said it took 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? Now obviously the religious leaders, again, they have no idea uh, what Jesus is talking about. They don't understand uh, uh, the analogy here. Now John helps here. He provides editorial comment and clarity we need at this moment. Verse 21. But he, Jesus, was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that, which he, that he said this and believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So again, the disciples, looking back in retrospect, they remember this conversation the Lord had and they understood what he meant. He wasn't talking about the, the physical temple, but he was talking about the temple of his body. Now again, the, the wicked religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, they're not really interested in signs. They say they are, but they're really not. The, the religious leaders aren't even interested in pure worship. If they had been, they would have not perverted the, the use of the temple. And when confronted by Christ with their wickedness, they would have admitted their guilt. They would have confessed their sin. They would have repented. They would have thanked Jesus for the correction, but they didn't do that. Because the reality is these religious people have no true interest in the things of God, no true love for God. They said they did. They wanted people to believe that they did, but they don't. They are unbelieving believers. Unbelieving believers. They are religious rejectors of God. And throughout the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry, he performed many miracles, many signs. Again, his supernatural power was undeniable. And people still didn't believe who he is, who he was. Because the unbeliever, the unbelieving man will not believe. Uh, unbelief blinds men, uh, blinds their eyes to the truth. Uh, unbelieving men don't want to know the truth. Uh, unbelieving men are rejectors of the truth. Unbelieving men reject the truth and suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as Paul says in, in Romans chapter 1. And again, an evil and adulterous generation like the one that's standing before Jesus at the moment, they're not interested in any sign. They're not even interested in Jesus raising from the dead. Because the issue with unbelief has to do with the scripture. The issue of unbelief has to do with the word of God, not evidence. Unbelievers reject the word of God. Unbelievers won't believe the scripture, again, the word of God, because if they do, then that makes them what? That makes them accountable to God. That's the issue. And men in their wickedness and rebellion don't want to be accountable to the most high God. Men in their rejection of uh, the true God, they want to be God in their own lives. Men in their rejection of the truth, they want to remain in the rebellion. They want to be the Lord over their own existence. But the truth is that's utter insanity. That's insanity that's irrational. Rejectors of the truth, that's the world they live in. Man is not God. God is God. Man makes, or God makes man in his image. God makes them male and female. Men do not have the ability, the power to change their gender at a whim. God is God, not man. The ultimate demonstration of self-deification in this culture is this whole transgender nonsense. I am something else. No, you're not. You are who God made you to be. You're not in charge. God is God, and all men are accountable to their creator, and men hate that message. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, here it is, beholding or observing or seeing his signs, which he was doing. The kind of faith in verse 23 here, they believed, many believed, that kind of faith is not genuine, it's not a genuine saving faith, because it's, this is the, the kind of faith that demands the miraculous. This is the kind of faith that comes by sight. And the kind of faith that comes by sight always wants more, bigger, better, more grand. The truth is Jesus is God come in the flesh. Therefore, he knows the hearts of all men. He knows that. He knows the hearts of all men. He knows that some belief is not the kind of belief that obtains eternal life. Some faith is not saving faith. 
And there's a kind of faith that Jesus does not approve of or the kind of faith that Jesus does not accept. Now, when he was in Jerusalem on the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding or again seeing some of the signs which he was doing, verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. He was not committing himself to them, for he knew all men. Now, again, that word entrusting is the word pistio. It's the same word that we previously translated a number of times, the word believe. Jesus very simply wasn't believing their belief. Jesus had no faith in their faith, no trust in their trust. He knew that their faith was an inadequate faith, a non-saving faith, a shallow faith. He knew it was the kind of faith that was unable to turn them away from sin. And Jesus is a Savior, and Jesus has come into this world to save his people from their sin, to change their lives. So again, Jesus knows they're not true believers in God. He, he, knows, he knows that because he's omniscient, verse 25. And, and, he, and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So this is a warning passage. This is a, a grace, but it's a warning passage. It's a terrifying reminder of the fact that there's a terrible danger of being deceived uh, concerning one's salvation. Because the truth is, not everyone who says that they are a follower of God or a follower of Christ not everyone who claims to be a Christian genuinely is one. People can be deceived into believing that they're Christians, that they're not saved, uh, or that, that they, they can be deceived into believing that they're Christians, that they're saved, when in reality they're not. People can convince themselves that they're on their way to heaven, when in reality they're on their way to eternal punishment. But the omniscient one knows. He knows. He, he knows the, the state of man's heart. And he knew, again, these people before him, these religious leaders, weren't committing themselves to him there in the context of the story. There's those, again, who claim to believe. He knew they were not true believers. Obviously, they don't believe him to be the Christ, but they don't believe in God. They're just playing this uh, religious game that's making them a lot of money there at the temple that he's just messed up because he just threw everybody out. The reality is true faith is always the work of the Holy Spirit. I turn over to John uh, 3, 1, John chapter 3. And I, I think there's a fascinating passage for what it says, and I think it's a fascinating fast passage for what it doesn't say. I, I just think it's a fascinating passage. John 3, 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? doesn't even acknowledge the, the, the false uh, uh, gratitudes and platitudes. It's just, look, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't sing the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, that phrase, born of water and the Spirit, is an Old Testament expression. Nicodemus should have known, he should have understood just basically saying there's a need of spiritual cleansing, a need of spiritual regeneration that takes place apart from human works. It takes place apart from human hands, human effort. It's the work of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is, of the, is the flesh, that which is born of the spirit is the spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. Again, he's saying that salvation is a sovereign work of God. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus, verse 10, answered him and said, Are you the teacher of Israel and don't understand these things? Loose paraphrase out in the margins of, a, of your Bible. It says this. He says to Nicodemus, You better figure it out. You better figure it out. If you care about your eternal, eternal soul... Because listen, just being religious, Nicodemus, is not enough. Just being religious won't save you. And I think it's utterly fascinating that he just stops right there and doesn't explain it more. Because this man claims to be a representative of God. He should have known that. Just being religious is not going to save you. Look over at chapter 6. Chapter 6, you have another example of unbelieving believers. You know the story, Jesus has fed the, uh, the multitude, 5,000 men, perhaps maybe up to 15 to 20,000 people, if you include women and children, some commentators would say. 
All he has is uh, five barley loaves and two fish, and he just instantaneously, in the presence of everyone, creates food. And everybody's satisfied, and, and there's much left over, uh, enough to fill 12 baskets. Just kind of drop in verse 14, John 6. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth, uh, this is of a truth of a prophet who has uh, come into the world. Uh, he, he's, a, he's a real deal. Look, God has sent this prophet into the world. He goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, remember that? Uh, the, the guys get in the boat, and he comes a little bit later, walks on the, on, on the water. And, and the multitude, they don't know that, but the multitude want to find, find him. So they walk around the outside of the, uh, of the shore, and they come to Capernaum. Uh, they'd been fed dinner the night before. They want breakfast here in the, in the morning. And then Jesus presents some very strong teaching concerning the fact that he's the bread of life. He's the bread of life. He's come down from heaven, and men must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Look at there at verse uh, 56, John 6, 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, really, it's a metaphor Christ is using to, to, of saying you've got to completely consume me. You've got to take me in in total. Uh, you've got to, like we eat, and it becomes part of our body. You've got to take me in in total, make me a, a part of you. But when Jesus said those words, many people fled. Verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus' conscience that is conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who, was, who it was that would betray him. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of the disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. These are false disciples. These aren't the 12. These are false disciples, false followers. People who call themselves a disciple, people who call themselves followers of Christ, but then they walk away from him. When he says something is difficult, they walk away from him because, again, here's the phrase they were unbelieving believers. They were unbelieving believers. Now, I think some of the people in that crowd were attracted to Jesus because uh, there was a crowd following him, and you've got nothing else to do on a Friday night, so I guess we'll just go with everybody and be part of the party, right? Some people were uh, 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 attracted to Jesus because, again, of the supernatural element of his uh, uh, ministry. I mean, there was a certain entertainment value to it, if you will. Many people wanted their needs met, their felt needs met. Many people wanted to have their food supplied for them. So it was Jesus making food for everybody. Everybody wanted him, wanted to be around him, and everybody wanted to make him king. But when Christ demands something difficult, when Christ demands absolute allegiance and preeminence in their life, and then acceptance of his death, many walked away from him. As a result, verse 66, again, many of the disciples, the false disciples withdrew and not walking with him anymore. Verse 67, Jesus therefore said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One. Right? When things are difficult, these men stay, the eleven. Of course, the prototype of all unbelief and unbelieving believers is, and false followers is really Judas Iscariot, verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was the one of the twelve who was going to betray him. So again, Judas feigns allegiance to Christ. He follows him all the way up to the upper room the night before he was executed when Jesus, or when Judas betrays Jesus, right? He turns his back on him. Judas was a believer. And from all intents and purposes, nobody in the group could tell he wasn't anything different than a believer. He claimed to be a believer. He looked like a believer, hung out with believers. Everybody thought he was a believer. They don't even know he's the deceiver. He's the, they don't even know he's the one that's going to, to, to uh, betray Christ, but he does. Judas believed upon Jesus until he betrayed him by his blood. Go over to chapter 8. Now, chapter 8, you see the same thing there? You've got the Jewish religious leaders who say they believe in God. That's why we're doing this. We're believers in God, right? Verse 28, John, uh, uh, John 8, verse 28. Jesus therefore said, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me, and He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Verse 30. As He spoke these things, Many came to believe in him. 
Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Verse 33, they answered him, We are Abraham's offspring. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? Verse 34, Jesus answered, Them truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. Therefore, the son of man shall set the, the son shall make you free, and you shall be free indeed. Verse 37, he goes, I know that you're Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me. Why? Because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen by, with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you've heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Uh, and uh, Jesus said to them, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. Verse 41, you are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come in my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Because you cannot hear my word. Again, these are the religious leaders of Israel. These are the ones that are quote unquote believers of God. But verse 34, Christ says they're still slaves of sin. Verse 37, he says they're rejectors of the word of God. Verse 42, he says that they're haters of Christ, not lovers of Christ. They actively sought to kill him. Verse 37, verse 40, verse 59 of the, of the passage. I know that you're Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Verse 37, verse um, 40, as, this, as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who's told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. Verse 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They don't love him, they hate him. And they can't understand what he's saying because they can't hear the word of God. They can't hear God's voice, verse 43. And the truth is these Jewish religious leaders, these religious people are actually uh, uh, children of the devil. You see that in verse 38, you see it in verse 41, and then you see it again here, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father who is a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He's a liar and the father of lies. Because I speak to you truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you're not of God. Again, you look back up at verse 30 of that passage and when he was speaking to them initially, it says many came to believe. Again, there is an there unbelieving belief. There are unsaved believers in God, if you will. Because not all faith is saving faith. Not every profession of faith is a genuine, the genuine thing. The reality is there are false disciples, false followers of God, false followers of Christ. Many followers in name only, unwilling really to pay the price to follow Christ. You don't have to turn there, but John 12, verse 42, nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Oh, we believe, but the price is kind of high, so it's going to be secret followers. They were unwilling. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to the disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. I read it at the top, uh, Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There's a cost. There's a cost and there's a terrible danger of being self-deceived concerning one's salvation. Because again, the truth is not everybody who claims to be a follower of Christ really is one. People can be deceived into believing they're Christians that they are saved when in reality they're not. So the issue of belief that is not salvific is a very important issue. And, and, and again, the, the statement, the thesis statement, John 20, verse 31, these things have been written that you what? You might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. So Jesus, or John writes for a reason. He wants you 
to come to a true knowledge of the truth. He wants you to come to a true knowledge of salvation. Uh, again, uh, there's a warning throughout his gospel that there's a false, non-saving faith, a kind of faith, a kind of belief that saves no one. Yet you have to understand the genuine from the false. And again, you go, well, I, how do I do that? I'm going to give you some more information. But just like Jesus in the conversation we had with Nicodemus, if you're at this point in the sermon and you go, I don't know what I need to do, then here's my advice. If you value your eternal soul, you best figure it out today, not tomorrow. Because your eternal soul is that value. Jesus didn't go step by step by step, didn't drag Nicodemus, didn't beg him. He said, you better figure it out, fella. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand what I'm saying? Because not all people who claim to be followers of Christ are. Not all people who claim uh, to be lovers of God really are. It's an important issue. Now, obviously, the passage that's probably the the classic uh, would be Matthew chapter 7. So turn back there on this issue of genuine saving faith. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody who says they quote-unquote believe in Jesus or in the vernacular, not everybody who says they have accepted Jesus will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, first word, many. Not few, but many. Many will say to me on that day, which is the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Many will say to me on that day of judgment, Lord, look, look, at, look at all the things we've done for you, Lord. Look, look how diligently we've worked for you. Look, look how, how, how steadfastly we are committed to you. How we prayed to you. Lord, Lord, we prayed to you. Look at our words. Look at our works. Aren't they wonderful? And it's all for you. Again, these are professing believers. These are people who are fervently religious. But these are people who are not genuine. They're not truly converted. They weren't born again. They weren't born from above. See the conversation of Jesus and Nicodemus. Unbelieving believers gathered in front of him, professing faith, who have, listen to me, these people have already spent centuries in torment under God's judgment, awaiting their final disposition and eternal condemnation <clears throat> because their faith was not genuine. Their faith wasn't real. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles, verse 23. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus says, look, all their words, all their works, all their religious devotion, all of their dedication, it's not going to stand up in the final judgment. They're all worthless. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you, or the word no to know is really an idiom uh, that represents an intimate relationship. It was the kind of a word that was used uh, in marital intimacy between a husband and wife. It's also the kind of a word that was used uh, in relating to God's uh, intimacy with his special people, the nation of Israel. So when Christ says, I never knew you, he's not saying, I don't know who you are. Uh, what he's saying is, you and I have never had a, really relation, a real relationship before. We, we never had a personal, intimate relationship that you're not really my follower. You're not really mine. You're not part of me. You're not my disciple. And ultimately, they didn't know him as Lord. They didn't know him as Savior. They weren't true. They were false. They were hypocrites. <clears throat> Perhaps some in that group were those who believed they could call Christ Lord, yet live their lives any way they wanted to live their lives, not submitting to his lordship, not obeying him in uh, every respect. Perhaps there were some people in that group who believed that they could call Christ Lord because they'd earned their salvation by all the good things they were doing, all the religious things they were doing, their their good works. Jesus says, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who, here it is, practice lawlessness. It's a present participle in the Greek. It just means continuing regular action. 
practice, work, labor. Uh, these are people who profess faith in Christ, yet they're working hard at lawlessness. They're working hard at evil. They're evildoers. They're, they're really working hard at breaking God's law. And, and those who claim to be saved, who claim to be followers of Christ, yet continually, habitually practice lawlessness, anomia means uh, wickedness, that, that profession of faith is not genuine. Because a profession of faith in the person of Jesus Christ and the practice of wickedness is completely incompatible. <clears throat> not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but... He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So they were those who outwardly professed faith in Christ, but inwardly they were rebellious. Someone has rightly said their hearts may have had, or their mouth may have had God's name, but rebellion was really in their heart. Saying one thing with their mouth, but in their heart they're still rebellious. They're deceived. Deceived, professing Christians, unbelieving believers. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but, here it is, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Vitally important because true, genuine salvation produces obedience. Genuine salvation produces obedience. John 3 and 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey him shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Hebrews 5.9, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Ezekiel 36, verse 27, I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. True salvation produces obedience. Salvation and obedience to the will of God are inseparable. Again, there are many false believers. Again, not a few, but many Many people who say, I believe in Jesus, many people who say, I accepted Jesus, of whom Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. Deceived, unbelieving believers with a faith that is not salvific. Again, ultimately, they don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. They weren't true followers. They're false. Their faith is not saving faith. Again, you go, man, that's really hard. I know it's really hard because the issue is important. And again, it's a warning passage, but the warning passage is left there by God because of his kindness, because of his mercy. He wants you to stop this morning. How do I know he wants you to stop this morning? Because you're here. If you weren't meant to hear the message, you would not be here this morning. You're here. He wants you to stop and listen. He wants to make sure that you evaluate yourself properly and that your, that your belief is the real thing. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what is it? What is the will? Well, the will of, Christ, the will of God the Father is to believe upon his Son. To, to genuinely believe upon the person of Christ. Repent from your sin. Be redeemed. Be regenerate. Become born again. Become obedient to Christ and live a holy life. Because it's possible to have a superficial false faith that's not a saving faith. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> it's the parable of the soils. Or the parable of the sower, probably better. But Matthew 13, verse 3. He, Jesus, he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up, and others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Others fell on the good soil. Yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now drop down to verse 18. In verse 18, Jesus starts to explain the parable. Hear the parable of the sower, and here's the explanation, here's the interpretation. Here's the spiritual truth behind the natural example. 
that those who believe in Jesus, right, who do believe in Jesus, who believe in Christ, can't understand. Now, who's the sower? It's, obviously, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look down at verse 37, you have to do that, but it confirms that. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The seed, verse 19, is the word of the kingdom, the word of God, God's revelation, God's gospel. Uh, Luke 8, 11 says the seed is the word of God. So the seed is the message of the kingdom, what God is like. The message of the rule of Christ, the message of the love that God has for men, the message of grace and forgiveness that salvation brings uh, to men who repent and place their faith in Christ. Uh, the message of how a man can get into the kingdom and escape uh, the wrath that is coming. And there are four soils, four responses to the gospel proclamation, four kinds of hearers that are characteristic even of the times in which we live. Soil number one is the hard heart, the unresponsive heart. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one whom the seed has, was sown uh, beside the road. So this is a man who's heard the word, but he's perishing. He doesn't even know. He, he's heard the word, but he has a love for sin. That keeps him away from Christ. That leaves him under condemnation. It leaves him under wrath. And Satan, who's a little g-god of this world, has blinded men's minds and blinded their eyes. They can't see the light of the gospel uh, of the glory of Christ. Second kind of soil, verse 20, is the rocky soil or the shallow heart, if you will. Verse 20, and the one in whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Right? This is the man who hears the gospel and he's excited about it. I mean, who, who doesn't want to go to heaven? Who doesn't want to escape hell? Who, who doesn't uh, want to escape eternal punishment? He hears the word, he hears the gospel, and he responds in an emotional appeal. Uh, he raises his hand, he walks forward, uh, walks down the aisle, he quote-unquote accepts Jesus. And he does it without counting the cost, without understanding the real significance of what he's doing. Caught up in the moment. Uh, he, he wants to be where everybody else is, he wants to be where everybody else is going. But it's not genuine. There's no root. Everything's external, everything is only temporary. There's no true repentance, no true brokenness over sin, no true contrition and sorrow over sin. Again, this man is just merely, quote-unquote, accepted Jesus. Again, without dealing with the issues of his heart, the, the issue of the sin of his own heart. Then trouble comes, verse 21. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now, unfortunately, there are a whole lot of people who fall in this category. A lot of people have made some kind of superficial commitment to Christ. A lot of people who, again, have accepted Jesus. Oh, boy, they're so excited at the beginning. But when the demands of the reality of living for Christ in a fallen world suddenly appear, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, they're not so sure. When persecution comes, opposition from the world, when trials, tribulations accompany living for Christ in a hostile world, then their association with Jesus becomes only temporary. Then they flee from him. They immediately fall away because there's no depth in their relationship. There's no depth in their commitment to Christ, no true conversion. Again, they may have believed, quote-unquote, in Jesus, but these people have never been born again. These people have never been born from above. They've never been regenerated. And you know these kinds of people. You know them. You heard their so-called profession of faith. You were there when they got baptized. You maybe spent hours discipling them. But when trouble came, persecution came, they abandoned the faith. They weren't willing to take a stand for Christ. They weren't willing to suffer for Christ. They weren't willing to take up their cross and follow him. And irrespective of their profession, they give evidence to the fact that they're never truly born again in the first place. John says in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they're not really what? Of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order it might be shown that they're really not of us. Third kind of soil. Third kind of soil is the weedy or the thorny soil uh, or the, the strangled heart, verse 22. And the one in whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Now again, uh, note, each category so far have heard the word. This is the man who hears the word. 
This man here, the third kind of soil, the, the uh, strangled heart, uh, he hears the word, but then the world gets in his way. The worry of the world, the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, it becomes unfruitful. So this man hears the word and he starts worrying. Starts worrying about his job, starts worrying about his career, starts worrying about his house, starts worrying about his car. And he starts living for the temporal, he starts living for stuff. Boy, he's got so much stuff and so many issues with his stuff. All of his stuff is breaking down. He can't keep track of all of his stuff. So he starts worrying about all of his stuff. He becomes preoccupied with the world. And he has no time now because of all this stuff. He has no time for reading the word, no reading the time to read the Bible, no time in prayer, no time for fellowship. Temporal, material things crowd out the eternal and the spiritual. He begins chasing the world's definitions of success in order to find contentment and happiness uh, for his own heart. So therefore, in this man's life who's heard the word, the word becomes choked out. And as a result, the word doesn't do what the word is supposed to do when it's sown in the heart, what the word is meant to accomplish, that is to produce new creations in Christ, new creatures in Christ. That's what the word does. The word makes us look more like the Savior. The word, the word makes us more and more conformed to the image of Christ, more and more obedient more and more desires to follow him. We're not obedient perfectly, but we have a desire. We have a desire to be obedient. We have a desire to put Christ in the place of preeminence in our life. We have a desire to do everything we do for his honor, for his glory. That's the sign of genuine faith. This man, again, the world has gotten his way of the word. And the Bible says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. One, you're going to love one and hate the other. Despise one and cling to the other. On the one whom the seed is sown among the thorns, this man who hears the word, the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. It's usually a slow process. The worry of the world, deceitfulness of riches. Again, just being flat too busy. Too busy, too busy at work, too busy around the house. Busyness, worldliness, worry, choke out the word. And again, it tends to be gradual. But slowly and slowly, there's more and more of a decline. Slowly and slowly, the world begins to strangle the spiritual life out in this man, and he is unfruitful. So genuine salvation is marked by fruitfulness. Not one's claim to Christ. Genuine salvation is marked by fruitfulness. Man can't come to Christ and be genuinely saved if his heart is preoccupied with the things of the world because those things are going to choke out the Word of God. They're going to choke out the love of God, the life of God in you. And I think in this example, what we need to realize here, in this portion of the parable, the weeds are natural. Issues, busyness, preoccupation, Worldly problems, worldly issues, that's normal. The weeds, they're just normal part of life. What's foreign in, in this example is the seed. It's the word. That's what's foreign. The seed has to be taken care of. It has to be cultivated, nurtured. Weeds are natural. They just occur everywhere. If you want the seed to grow, then you're going to have to pluck out the weeds that are choking out the word you want to walk with Christ in a true manner, then you're going to have to get rid of the worldly things and worldly preoccupations. You're going to have to give up the deceitfulness of riches, the, the busyness of a life in the world in which we live. And you're going to have to completely devote yourself to the care of the Word. Or you're going to fade away spiritually. You're going to die spiritually. Again, the true mark of salvation, genuine salvation, is fruit. True believers look like something. True saving faith looks like something in the life of a man or a woman. And it manifests the life of Christ. The fruit that is manifested is the life of Christ in them. So again, the hard soil produces no fruit. The rocky soil produces no fruit. The thorny soil produces no fruit, again, because it's unfruitful. And hell's going to be full of people who are fruitless, who, people who claim some kind of superficial allegiance and association with Christ, but attachment or claiming attachment to Christ isn't genuine salvation. John 15, 2, Jesus says, every branch of me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 6, he throws it away and they're gathered, cast into fire and they're burned. So superficial association with uh, Jesus is not salvific. True believers, genuine believers, manifest fruit in their life. 
life of Christ in them. Which takes us to the fourth soil, the fourth response to the gospel, the good soil, the open heart. Verse 23. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word, understands it, who indeed bears fruit, brings forth some hundred, some sixty, some thirty. So there is a good soil out there. And the word of God, the gospel is sown, some people are going to respond positively. They're going to hear the word, they're going to understand the word, and they're going to indeed bear fruit, some more than others, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And again, that's exactly what you see amongst the true believer even today, the genuine believer, the true follower of Christ. True believers bear fruit. True believers look like Christ. What kind of fruit? Well, Paul says in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Ephesians 5.9, the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Romans 1, Paul says that fruit leads others to Christ. Good fruit leads others to Christ and helps them grow. Romans 7 says our union with the resurrected Christ is going to allow us to bear fruit for God. Psalm 1, verse 1, how blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted in streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does he prospers fruit is always the mark of genuine salvation fruit is evidence of the fact that god is in you that god is at work in you in your life so again if somebody claims to know christ they have no fruit no manifestation of righteousness no manifestation of christ likeness in their life uh, again in deeds and attitudes then no matter what profession they have made with their lips their profession is not genuine it's only superficial and one day that superficial profession will die out. So again, there's a kind of faith that's not a saving faith. A kind of belief that's not salvific. The truth is there are many unbelieving believers. So how do you tell someone? How do you tell? How do you tell the truth from the false? Now, to be honest with you, I think at times it's an issue. Again, there's a kind of easy believism, a kind of being drawn in by the crowd and this kind of easy believism, especially with the culture in which we live, uh, again, you quote-unquote accept Jesus if you got problems in your life, and why wouldn't you accept Jesus if you got all kinds of problems in your life, right? There's a lot of people say, well, I, I believe in Jesus because I got this issue and that issue. Uh, somebody makes that appeal, and they say, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to put a different God on the mantle of my life, can try this Jesus God thing, and see if that works. That's not genuine conversion. So how do you tell the genuine from the false? Well, you look at their life. You just look. What motivates them? What drives them? What's their passions? What compels them? Whom do they love? What do they love? Now, sometimes I, I'll admit, I think it's hard to tell if you're honest. But I think we all know people like this. Maybe your neighbor, maybe your spouse, maybe it's one of your children. Maybe it's your parents. Somebody in the fellowship. Somebody you serve alongside in some time in the past in ministry. Maybe it's you. Maybe you're going, man, I don't know. Am I genuine? Am I the real thing? You go, are they saved? You go, well, am I saved? Have I really come to a true knowledge of the truth? Have I come to a true knowledge of, uh, of the Savior? That's a legitimate question. People who tell you don't ever question your salvation, do not listen to them. Nicodemus, here's the situation, my friend, and you better figure it out. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself or you do not recognize about yourself that Christ is in you. Then there's a dash, a pause, take a breath, unless you indeed fail the test. Paul says you better look. It's a pretty important issue if you value your eternal soul. So again, deception is real. There's an intellectual assent to the truth that some people take. Uh, they claim uh, is saving faith, but it's really not saving faith. I, I've said this a number of times. Uh, that there's a kind of faith that's really demonic faith. Now, James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. You believe, right? James 2.19, it's the same word, pistua. It's the same word we just used in, in different passages for belief. The demons believe and they shake. James, again, is saying, look, not, not all belief is genuine salvific belief. Not all, not all believing results in salvation. So it's obviously in the James 2.19 passage, the kind of believing there is not salvific. It's just some kind of mental assent 
uh, to uh, the reality of Jesus Christ. And uh, the, the mental ascent here to the reality of Jesus Christ isn't obviously changing the demons' hearts. It doesn't change their behavior. It doesn't change their eternal destiny. And again, there's a lot of people in, in modern Christianity that have nothing more than demonic-like belief. Nothing more than an intellectual assent to the truth of the facts of Jesus. Uh, but again, the demons aren't, believe, aren't saved and neither are people who just merely assent to the truth. And I think it's really interesting that here, at least with the demons, there is a physical response. They shake. They tremble. They have enough knowledge of the truth, enough contact with reality, not ethereal, but reality. I, I've been in his presence. He's a scary individual because he's the holy God and we're not. They shake. I've asked the question before, and I think it's legit. Do you shake? Have you ever trembled in fear concerning the prospect there's a living God? who's holy and you're not. Ever. Have you ever? If never, I, I think there's at least a genuine ground to question, or at least a legitimate ground to at least pause and, and question the genuineness of the profession of your faith. I'm not talking crazy. I'm just making a statement of reality based on the Word of God. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 19.22, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Uh, Hebrews 10.31, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. People who really know God understand he's holy, he's not like me. There, there's a certain reverence that, again, the demons at least, it causes a physical response. They shake, they tremble because they know they're under judgment. They know that one day they're going to face him and holy judgment. And they're absolutely terrified. So again, sometimes trying to pick out the truth from the false is difficult. You go, Matthew 13, there's also the parable of the wheat and the tares. Wheat's obviously good fruit. Tares are a noxious weed. Sometimes they look exactly, they grow up beside each other. Sometimes you can't tell the difference. Sometimes you just have to wait. So I got to wrap this up. What, what exactly are the things that you would look for to see if your faith is genuine? I'm going to give you two broad headings. I'm going to shotgun them at you. You'll be okay. Always go back and listen. I'm going to give you heading number one. Here's evidences that do neither prove nor disprove your faith. Okay? Evidence that neither prove nor disprove your faith. Visible morality, an intellectual knowledge, religious involvement, active ministry, conviction of sin. You might look at uh, Acts 24, verse 25. Paul confronts Felix and he's uh, convicted, but he doesn't repent. Visible morality, intellectual knowledge, religious involvement, active ministry, conviction of sin, assurance, or time of decision. Second major category. These are proof of authentic saving faith. True Christianity. Number one, a love for God and Christ. Right? Isn't that, isn't that a love for God and Christ? Psalm 42.1, as the deer pants for water brooks, so my heart pants for thee, O God, my soul thirsts for God, the living God, whom I shall come uh, um, and appear before my God. Luke 10, again, the greatest commandment, Luke 10.27, you shall what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, all your mind, right? A love for God, a love for Christ. Number two, repentance from sin. David said, I, I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I didn't hide, I confess my transgression, and you forgave me. Right? Psalm 32, 5. John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we what? Confess our sins. A love for God, a love for Christ, a repentance from sin. Number three, genuine humility. I can't go into it because I've gone too long here, but in, in Matthew 5, the, the Beatitudes, the blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The mer blessed are the merciful, right? Salvation begins with a genuine humility towards God. A brokenness over sin. A, a contrite heart. A repentance. A love for God, a love for Christ. Repentance from sin. Genuine humility. An authentic, genuine, saving faith, number four, is marked by devotion for God and His glory. Marked by devotion for God and His glory. 
1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether then you eat or drink or, next word, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Genuine salvation is marked by a devotion for God's glory, marked by continuing, continual prayer. Uh, uh, Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, a genuine believer is praying to God always. A selfless love. 1 John three fourteen. we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He does not... Love abides in death. Devotion to God and his glory, continual prayer, selfless love, a love for the brethren, a love for other brothers and sisters in Christ. Number seven, separation from the world. Separation from the world. First John 2, verse 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anybody loves the world, the, the love of the Father is not in him for all that's in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Separation from the world. Number eight, spiritual growth. Spiritual growth. Luke eight fifteen. The seed in the good soil uh, uh, these are the ones that have heard the word and the honest, the good heart, and hold fast to it and bear fruit with perseverance, right? There's got to be some kind of signs of life. And then obedience and living. Last one, verse, uh, uh, Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but what? He who does the will of my Father is in heaven. We could go on. First Peter 1 talks about you obey Christ, being sprinkled with his blood, you have an obedience to truth, purified your heart, First Peter uh, 1, uh, uh, verses uh, 2, and then verse 22, that passage. So again, genuine saving faith looks like something. It, it, it's more than just an intellectual assent to the truth. It actually changes people from the inside out. There's a transformation of life. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. Old things pass away, new things come. I used to be in love with the things of the world, now I'm in love with God and Christ. I just want to honor them, him with my life. God is the most preeminent thing. Christ is the most preeminent person. Everything that I do in my life is through the lens of how can I honor the Lord in my life. I know I'm not perfect, but thank the Lord I have a perfect Savior, right? I don't, it's not my perfection that gets me right standing with God. It's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can I honor him in my life and everything? And be obedient. Again, no man can make a legitimate claim to be a follower of Christ who refuses to obey him. No man can legitimately claim to be a follower of Christ who refuses to obey him. Hebrews 5 9, having been made perfect, Christ, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Jesus Christ certainly is not the source of a salvation for those who hate him and those who are still in rebellion against him. Disbelief or disobedience proves disbelief. On the other hand, a desire towards obedience proves genuine saving faith. Transformation of life. With a caveat over the whole thing, understanding that salvation, genuine salvation, is a gift of God. Again, Nicodemus, you have to be born what? From above. You have to be born again. It literally means born from above. Ephesians 2.8, by grace you've been saved through faith that not of yourself, it is the what? Gift. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. John 6, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father draws him. So again, these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. you got to stop and make sure your faith is genuine. Last little caveat. First, Peter, I won't read the whole thing. There's a great statement. It talks about we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from our feudal way of life, inherited from our forefathers. First Peter 1, verse 19, listen. But with the precious blood of the Lamb unblemished, spotless. I'll tell you a way that you can really evaluate your life if you're a genuine believer. Is Christ precious to you? Is he precious to you? Because a person who has genuine saving faith, Christ is the most precious individual on the planet. A person who has genuine saving faith just wants to be obedient to the best of their ability. They just want to honor the Lord in their life. They want to see God glorified, Christ glorified in everything they do. So a person who has genuine saving faith, they walk in humility, they're thankful for God's kindness. They're broken over their sin. They desire to honor and glorify God and Christ in everything to the best of their ability. So I pray that's you. If it's not, 
Not tomorrow, but if it's not today, right now. You ask the Lord to make that true in your own heart. That he would give you genuine saving faith. That you would follow Christ. That Christ would be precious in all of your life. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for our time together in your word this morning. We thank you for your truth. Help us to stand firm in it. Help us to not be deceived because you give all these warning passages and you do it to bring a certain sense of fear. Yes, that's true, but you do it because of your love, your love for us. Example, example of all over the places of people who are religious but not saved. Help that not to be true of any of us this morning because we've had an opportunity to hear what genuine saving faith uh, looks like. Work in your heart and the hearts of your Work in our hearts, the hearts of your people through your word, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.